today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Any woman who has irregular cycles and has a lot of facial hair or this jawline acne, those are the classic symptoms. And of course, it also can manifest as infertility because if you're not ovulating, you're not going to easily get pregnant. In fact, you can't get pregnant if you don't ovulate. That's why PCOS is the number one underlying etiology of female infertility. And then it goes beyond that. One of the things that is now recognized finally is that PCOS is a high risk status for pregnancy. If a woman with PCOS gets pregnant, it needs to be recognized by their obstetrician that this woman is high risk for every potential complication of pregnancy. Hello, hello. I'm your host for today, Dr. Carrie Jones, and I am so excited to talk with one of my absolute favorites, Dr. Felice Gersh. We are talking all about PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome. Dr. Gersh is one of the first dual board certified integrative gynecologists in the United States. She's a prolific educator on the topic of women's hormones. I have learned a lot from her over the years. And she's also a best-selling author on books such as those around PCOS. PCOS is the number one endocrine disorder in reproductive age women in the United States. It is an important topic as it not only involves your hormones, but it can increase your risk for conditions such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Therefore, she dives deep into all the facts about it, your symptoms to watch out for, lab work to evaluate, and more. In fact, if this podcast resonates with you, she's actively seeing patients at Medical Integrative Group of Irvine and is the host of the PCOS SOS Summit starting in November, 2023. In fact, you can sign up for free in the link in the show notes. If you've been diagnosed with PCOS or Maybe you suspect you have it. This episode is for you. Don't miss out on this important information. Before we get started though, I wanna to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course, are supplements. There is a lot of confusion around supplements and you only wanna take the best quality that uses top tier certified manufacturers and most importantly, do third party independent testing to make sure what's on the label is in the capsule. That's why I've teamed up with New Ethics Formulations as their chief medical officer. The team already had a strong history in the supplement world, but started the company to really focus on bettering your health and helping to enhance your physique or performance goals. I'm excited to help them continue to focus on the endocrine system and hormones as it relates to glucose, thyroid, estrogen, and even your gut microbiome. Right now, you can get 20% off one order using code DRJONES20 at newethics.com. That's drjones20 at newethics.com today. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Felice Gersh, I am so excited to have you on the Root Cause Medicine podcast to talk about PCOS. This is an honor. It's a great privilege, and I get to chat with you about one of my passions, talking about, like you mentioned, PCOS. This is huge, and I have known you for a while, but following you even longer than that, I have your PCOS books. I've seen you at conferences, and you are just an absolute joy to learn from, whether you're a practitioner or a patient or client or consumer or anyone. I think everyone listening is going to really learn a lot and just Enjoy your style. And at the end, we are going to talk about a summit that Dr. Gersh is hosting 
all about PCOS, make sure you either read the show notes or stay tuned towards the end. Before we get started, I want to just give you an opportunity for those who don't know your famousness. How did you get into this? How did you become a doctor? And how did you get into PCOS and even write the books you wrote on PCOS? Becoming a doctor was, in a way, like a no-brainer for me. I grew up in a family where they emphasized service as far as a career would go. They said, maybe you would want to be a teacher or maybe you'd want to be a doctor. I said, I picked doctor. That was easy. In terms of choosing my specialty, that in a way was also a no-brainer because I was messed up. And you know how this happens so often that you seek the answers for your own issues by going down a certain tract in medicine or it could be for a family member. This is classic. They always joke about psychiatrists that way, but we love psychiatrists. But as far as OBGYN, a lot of them are now women. A lot of them went into that field because they also had some issues. For me, I had really unpleasant, to say the least, acne. And I did not know what to do. I thought I just wasn't cleaning my face well enough. And I got alcohol. I was trying to innovate. And I tried alcohol. And that obviously did not work. That just made my skin crack. I had cracks all around my cystic pimples. It was not a good scene. And then I didn't have periods that were regular. And then I went two whole years when I was in medical school without a single period. I went to that one of the world-renowned endocrine infertility docs that was on the faculty of my university and where I was training. And he said, you're not even trying to get pregnant. What do you care? Women don't even like having periods. Anyway, just go on birth control pills. Like, what are you even complaining about? It was like, what? But there's something wrong with me. I tried birth control pills because I was obedient and I did not like the way I felt at all, but I tried to stick with it. And then I went into my residency because it's like, I need some answers and I'm sure not getting them in medical school. And then I didn't really get them in residency either, but I had to do like so many of us, my own self biohacking to figure out what the heck was wrong. When I wanted to get pregnant, I needed to use fertility drugs. And I finally figured out because I was the lean version of PCOS that, yeah, you know what, this is actually PCOS. Because in the textbooks that I had, they were calling it in a lot of the books still Stein Leventhal, which was always like they showed this very uh, much larger woman and she had a real beard. It was like the extreme, like the most extreme case. And I wasn't that extreme, but I definitely had it. And in fact, I'm short, I'm between 5'1", five, 5'2", five, and I was pretty small, I was smaller in that time. And my babies were nine pounds, nine, six. There's a little insulin resistance problem here to make such gigantic babies. Basically, I figured out myself, I made my own self-diagnosis that I was PCOS. And then I saw the treatments were limited, to say the least. I call myself a synthesizer. What does that mean? I read across all areas of science and medicine, getting the root cause, the basic science, and then I put it together. I synthesize it into a whole so that I can understand how the body works and when things go awry, what is causing them, and then come up with really viable, like I always say, safest, most efficacious. But in terms of getting into integrative medicine, for many years, I was so busy 
raising my family and also running my own practice. And I was doing tons of deliveries, lots of high risk. I did a lot of high risk obstetrics. I also was a leader in the field of doing gynecological surgery. I didn't have a lot of time to do other things. But in my practice, from the get-go, I brought in what I called my affiliates. From early on in my practice, I had a Chinese medicine practitioner, a massage therapist, a nutritionist, a psychologist, biofeedback. I had all of this in my practice, but I didn't have any knowledge myself personally. I worked with them, but I was still a very conventionally trained doctor, but I knew there had to be more. I incorporated all of that. But then I decided it was my time due to massive circadian rhythm dysfunction from 25 years of doing lots of night call with all the deliveries that I had to give up obstetrics. It was just required after 25 years. And then I had more sleep, more free time. And of course, I had to fill it. Being a little bit of a workaholic, I had to like, oh, now I have free time. I have to fill it. Of course, I had to now fulfill my ultimate destiny, which was to go back to school and do the two-year fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine, the Andrew Weil program. And I finished that over a decade ago. And I just never looked back. I just kept learning and learning and synthesizing and figuring out more and more about women and hormones and health. And basically what that gave me was what I call my expanded therapeutic toolbox. I haven't shed everything from conventional medicine. I still am an MD and I still know all the conventional. I'm not alternative medicine, I'm integrative. I use whatever I have to when I need to. If I need pharmaceuticals or surgeries, then they're incorporated, but they're not my typically first line approach. I now have a much expanded therapeutic approach that incorporates lifestyle, herbal medicine, lots of mind-body therapies, which is so critical. And I incorporate all of that into my PCOS care and helping women because it just hasn't changed from way back when the conventional medicine approach and understanding of PCOS has budged minusculely, seriously. That's why I have to meet with wonderful people like you and help spread the word that there are other options, better options, even if you use the conventional to expand your ability to heal and get better. And I think that's so much hope to give women because my very first question was going to be, not to age you, but it does seem you've been in practice a very long time. What change have you seen, if any? And it sounds like None. And that's just devastating, devastating for these poor women. The thing that's so ridiculous is that the academics, and I've met all of them, I've been involved in organizations with them, what they tend to focus on so heavily is now changing the name. I'm not kidding. They want to change the name of PCOS to something that's more descriptive of the metabolic issues. And of course, I want everyone to know that there are metabolic issues, but changing the name is not really advancing health or anything. And also, if you go to PubMed and you want to learn about PCOS, everyone's going to put in the words PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome. They're not going to put in some new metabolic something, 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 something. And then when they create these long names. Nobody can remember them. No one can say them. Then they just take the first letters. This is what happened with chronic fatigue syndrome. They changed the name and nobody can remember the new name. They just use the letters. And then that doesn't mean anything. That's just letters. And then nobody can remember them either. They just say chronic fatigue syndrome. This is what academics are wasting their time on, is just let's 
have committees and meetings and come up with a new name. But guess what, everybody? I didn't elect them and they're not our bosses and they do not have the power to change the name. We can call it whatever we want. And PCOS is what people know it by. And most disease states actually do not have a descriptive name. If you said diabetes, what does that tell you about diabetes? And is it one or two? And Alzheimer's disease, that's a guy's name. This is ridiculous, but this is, talk about progress. This is anti-progress for PCOS. Especially, I believe I've read a statistic, or maybe you told me the last time we talked, it's a very high statistic of women who go to the doctor who should be diagnosed or told or worked up for PCOS and aren't. They go years and years with these symptoms, which we'll talk about, until finally somebody says, oh, you know what? I think it might be PCOS. And they're like, yeah, like a decade ago, I should have gotten this workup. Is that true? It seems shocking to me because it's not that hard of a diagnosis to make, but it is true. They've actually done surveys that some women go to 11 doctors to get the diagnosis and then you get the diagnosis and then the treatment you get is the same as 30 years ago. It's not like now you have the label, now all problems are resolved. It doesn't work that way at all, but to make it a struggle even to get a label And it's a complicated label in a lot of ways because it's a rule out, as many syndromes are. you got to rule out other things that are creating the same symptoms or findings. And that's why it's really important that everyone sees someone who knows about this condition because you could have an actual other issue going on that can create comparable kinds of presentation. It is, for some reason, it has been a challenge. But here's the good thing. It is, there's progress in recognition. It's out from the shadows. PCOS is being talked about and recognized as the most common endocrine disorder of women, the most common cause of infertility of women. Finally, it's at least seeing the light of day. I think that doctors are going to be way more aware of it. And then what our job is to create the awareness, but then to facilitate better therapeutic approaches so that just getting the label isn't the end of the line because it is in a lot of ways because, and we'll talk about the conventional and then some of the newer ways of looking at PCOS because the conventional, like we say over and over, hasn't budged in terms of their approach in 30 years. That's like heartbreaking for the majority of women out there. Absolutely, which I'm so glad I have resources like you and the summit coming up and your books that you've written because, and I'm even glad you mentioned in your own story, of course, that with lean PCOS, there's this stigma of maybe a more traditional PCOS to look for. And if you are not a larger bodied person, then there's no way it could be PCOS. I've actually heard people say this before. And I'm like, no, you can be lean PCOS. I do want to cover common symptoms that you may be experiencing. And then what is the difference between a larger bodied person and lean PCOS and how you are still considered under the syndrome umbrella of PCOS. Absolutely, because there are so many common problems, whether you're the lean or the overweight version of PCOS, which explains why I had insulin resistance and could have a almost a six and a half, rather a nine and a half pound baby. In my dreams, it was six and a half. No, <laughs> nine and a half pound baby. And because the underlying issues are really the same, that's an important takeaway. All right. What are common symptoms that our listeners should be looking out for if they have these things? PCOS is something to consider. The official recognized diagnostic criteria for getting the label of PCOS was 
evolved from a conference that they call the Rotterdam Conference and a number of years ago. And it really hasn't been too changed. They just had an organization that came up with a slight modification, which I'll share. The basic is that you have two of the following three if you're an adult. An adult means that you're several years out from the first menstrual period. And there's actually a separate criteria for adolescents. For adults, we'll say 19 and over, that kind of range. For some, if they started their period early, it could be 18 and over. For the adults, you need two of the following three. And actually, this has also been controversial in terms of the hyperandrogenist, but it still stands officially that you need either androgen excess, which is like elevated testosterone. They actually focus on testosterone, that you have elevated testosterone and it will manifest clinically as cystic recalcitrant, stubborn, like we call hormonal acne, where it's deep cysts in the jawline. It could be facial hair, hirsutism, which no woman wants to shave and have a five o'clock shadow. It could be excessive body hair in general, but usually hirsutism is the facial hair. Androgenic alopecia, which is considered a softer sign, which is like male pattern, female version, male pattern, baldness or hair thinning. Women pretty much, unless they have a whole different condition, get actually bald, but they can get pretty fine, thin hair, which is not what any woman wants. Or for androgen excess, it could be what they call biochemical, what's in a lab test. It's either by manifestation clinically or in a lab testing. And then the next one is the classic irregular cycles or no cycles. And then the last one is ovarian cysts that are tiny, these little cysts that are called follicular cysts that are around the rim or the cortex, the outside rim. Sometimes they're called a rim of a ring of pearls because it looks like little pearls, like a little pearl necklace. And their criteria says it should be with a high resolution, high quality ultrasound. And you see at least 20 of those in at least one ovary. But I can tell you among my radiologists, I never see them counting. I never get a count, but that's the official. And for the new thing that came out, the new kid on the block is anti-Mullerian hormone, um, AMH. And that is a lab test. They're saying that if you prefer, you can substitute, and this is a committee, you can substitute anti-Mullerian hormone, which would be very high in a woman with PCOS, in place of the ultrasound. That's the only new thing that came out from the criteria from five years ago. Every five years, they have to change something. That was added. For adolescents, there is no ultrasound that is recommended. There is no anti-Mullerian hormone. They are not reliable in the very early stages of puberty, like in the early to mid-teens, it's too early to get those tests. For a young person, an adolescent, it would be that you have really significant facial hair. That's the main thing. And irregular, and not or, and irregular cycles. And if there's not quite sure, then they just say tending towards or suspicious for PCOS. And then of course, they would be followed and treated appropriately, hopefully. Really, any woman who has irregular cycles and has a lot of facial hair or this jawline acne, those are the classic symptoms. And of course, it also can manifest as infertility because if you're not ovulating, you're not going to easily get pregnant. In fact, you can't get pregnant if you don't ovulate. That's why PCOS is the number one underlying etiology of female infertility. And then it goes beyond that. One of the things that is now recognized finally is that PCOS is 
a high-risk status for pregnancy. If a woman with PCOS gets pregnant, it needs to be recognized by their obstetrician that this woman is high risk for every potential complication of pregnancy, especially if she was not preconceptually managed, which is a really important thing to get really healthy before you can see. But that's not typical. Even in IVF centers where many of them end up for fertility issues, they don't really operate on the premise that you should be healthy before you get pregnant. They just want to get people pregnant and then they move them down the line, the assembly line to the obstetrician who'll deal with all their pregnancy-related complications. That includes like gestational or pregnancy-induced hypertension, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, preterm deliveries, either growth-restricted babies, too small because of placental dysfunction and vascular issues, or macrosomia, too big of a baby, like I had, because there's too much sugar circulating in the mom's blood and it passes into the baby and the baby gobbles it up and gets really chubby. It's too big, too little, and all those other things, pregnancy-related issues in terms of dysfunctional labors, like I said, preterm deliveries. That's why it's so important for any woman who ever thinks that she wants to get pregnant to optimize her health long before she even wants to conceive. It's so important to go into pregnancy already at the optimal health status. And I want everyone listening to realize or know, Dr. Gersh did not mention anything about weight or BMI or height or body mass in those guidelines that they diagnosed. Absolutely, yes, being overweight, insulin, glucose plays a huge role, which I'm gonna ask her about in a second. But I do want people to realize it's the other, there's the guidelines, the criteria are on those three other things, androgens, your cycles, ultrasound, but you only have to have two out of three. And it's not about weight. I'm sure you have as well. I've had many a patient come to me and say, I have really irregular cycles. I have cystic acne. I feel like I'm a classic case, but I'm about what you'd expect from my height with my weight. And therefore I was told, it's not possible. It can't be PCOS. I'm like, it's not a guideline. That one marker is not a guideline very important for other risks, not a guideline. And what's interesting is that the so-called, they labeled it lean PCOS, those women equally have insulin resistance. And also, if you do body compositions, which not everyone has access to, we actually do high quality body compositions because BMI, which that took a while before that became in, accepted, which you know, body mass index, looking at the computation of the number based on height and weight. But now people are saying appropriately, wait a minute, that's not telling the whole story. You can get on the scale and you're in a healthy so-called BMI, but that doesn't mean you have a healthy body composition. When you do body compositions of the so-called lean women with PCOS, what do you find? You find that they have an excessive amount of body fat that is visceral fat, the kind that's around the belly, inside, around the organs. Unfortunately, they also have a higher rate of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You can have fat in a lot of places that are really unhealthy and pro-inflammatory. And they often have a deficiency of muscle, like lean body mass. It's not that they just lucked out in every way, because when you look at body composition, it's not a healthy body composition. And that's underlying a lot of these same issues, whether you're thin, medium, or obese in PCOS. When you have the obesity element as well in the mix, 
it does exacerbate a lot of things. It's like fuel to the fire, literally, but it's not creating a whole new dynamic. It just adds another layer of complication. Let's talk about things like body composition and workup. How do you work up a PCOS patient? PCOS is officially a diagnosis of exclusion, which is often common in syndromes because sometimes other underlying issues can cause similar symptoms. You want to get a lot of labs. I love data, and these are not really optional. You want to check for, of course, the basic hormone. You want to get a total and a free testosterone, an estradiol, D-H-E-A-S, which is the androgen that is exclusively made by the adrenal gland. And this is often not even understood with testosterone because if you look at testosterone levels circulating in the blood, where does it even come from? A lot of people think it's from the ovaries. Some is about 25%. That's all. 25% of circulating testosterone comes from the ovaries. 25% comes from the adrenal. This isn't a normal, healthy woman. Um, not talking about PCOS, which may be skewed in one way or the other. And then where's the other 50% of testosterone coming from? It's actually coming from other tissues, predominantly from fat tissue, which has enzymes that can convert androgens. These are like male type hormone precursors from the adrenal gland into testosterone, which then circulates indirectly and directly 75% of all the testosterone circulating in the female body is originating from the adrenal gland. If you just have an elevated testosterone and that's the only androgen you order, you won't know where it's coming from, okay? You just can't know. That's why you have to get DHEAS because that is unique to the adrenal gland. If that level is very high, then that could be indicating that the testosterone is also largely coming from that conversion of DHAS into testosterone and also from the adrenal gland. And it, you need to go into a whole separate line of workup looking at adrenal dysfunctions. And there's a whole slew of them. You have to rule out like a late onset of what's called congenital but late onset adrenal hyperplasia, where there's an enzyme dysfunction, you have to rule out that there's even an adrenal tumor. You have to look at those things. And super, super, super high levels of testosterone, you have to even consider an ovarian tumor. There's a variety. And if suddenly a woman in menopause suddenly gets really high testosterone, that's not PCOS. You got to look at other sources, tumors, or where you have a problem with certain cells that can make testosterone because the ovaries can make testosterone forever for the life of the woman. You don't need any eggs to make testosterone and you need eggs to make estrogen and progesterone. It's a different skill set to make testosterone. And that's why you can't look at testosterone related to menopause because it's not like there's a direct relationship there that is important to know. The bottom line is that you have to get the all of these types of hormones and then you want to get sex hormone binding globulin, which is a protein made in the liver that can bind up testosterone because it's only the unbound or like we'll say free to act testosterone that actually has an effect on the tissues. And when you have a lot of inflammation or insulin resistance, it tends to lower sex hormone binding globulin. Even if the testosterone level isn't really incredibly high, if the sex hormone binding globulin is very low, you can manifest with hirsutism, hair growth, and acne because you have too much unbound or free testosterone. You got to look at all these things and understand all of these things. You got to look at thyroid. Thyroid dysfunction is so prevalent 
and not just low thyroid, but Hashimoto, it's autoimmune thyroid. You got to look for those antibodies. And a lot of doctors don't test them. They're like what they call anti-TPO, anti-thyroid peroxidase and thyroglobulin antibodies. It's really important that those antibodies be tested because it's really a much higher prevalence of autoimmune thyroid disease in women with PCOS. And then you want to check lipids. You want to check for your cholesterol and you want to check triglycerides, but you want to get a high-end test, especially if you're over 35, looking at different types of particles and such. Because the 70-year-old lipid profile, that's archaic now because it doesn't tell you where the cholesterol is going. You want to get oxidized cholesterol. It's only rancid cholesterol that ends up in arteries causing plaque. And you want to get a whole array of inflammation markers because inflammation, chronic, unrelenting inflammation underlies all the diseases of chronic aging related things, but also in PCOS. I think of PCOS as accelerated aging because of this. And there's actually some really clever people coined some terms that I steal because they didn't patent them. One is inflammaging. They sort of chronic inflammation associated with aging, which I actually think is all related to deficiency states, not how many years you've lived, but another story about aging. But the other term that was created is metaflammaging. The inflammation related to metabolic dysfunction. And that's really where PCOS is at. But in the end, it ends up creating the same problems. That's why if you look at the problems that women in menopause suffer from a metabolic point of view, lipid abnormalities, insulin resistance, hypertension, they're really comparables to what women with PCOS are suffering because they both have this unrelenting state of inflammation that damages these organ systems. I like to get a whole array of inflammation markers. And then I like to get an ANA, anti-nuclear antibody, because autoimmunity, not just thyroid, but other types of autoimmunity are common. And you may just have an elevated anti-nuclear antibody and you want to get on it because we don't want to develop other disease states like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. And this all stems from, guess what? Leaky gut. Now, back in 2015, it was research out of China, which, by the way, has an explosion of PCOS in China. And what did they find? They found that pretty much all women with PCOS have an abnormal gut microbiome that we call dysbiosis, which leads to impaired gut barrier function, also known as leaky gut. And this causes the abnormal microbes and other, we call it trash that happens to be in the gut, to actually pass between the cells that kind of become a little bit apart. We call that the tight junctions. The cells are really close together. They kind of drift apart because the inflammation gets right up to the lining tissue, the lining cells, and causes degradation or damage to the little fibers that hold those cells together. This bad stuff from in the gut leaks out and the immune systems, a large percentage, controls all of the stuff relating to autoimmunity and inflammation, and it lines the gut, it's called the gut associated lymphoid tissue or the GALT, those immune cells. And this was actually figured out in 1998 by a friend of mine who was a researcher at Indiana University that the immune cells of women with PCOS have a lower threshold of triggering inflammation. It's the total perfect storm. Now you have leaky gut, you have immune cells that will trigger the production of these pro-inflammatory cytokines, these inflammatory particles that distribute throughout the body and also into the brain and everywhere. And women with PCOS, they create more inflammation from the same amount of triggering. And these chemicals that come out and the bacteria 
we call that endotoxins or lipopolysaccharides, these things that come through the lining gut and end up creating this total body state of inflammation. I will often check the gut. I want it like, okay, what's the gut microbiome? And also nutritional status is a big problem because often women with PCOS have irritable bowel syndrome because they often have problems with their motility of their gut because that's all messed up too. And that relates to this whole total package. They end up having poor absorption of nutrients. I like to test for that. Micronutrient testing is really important because it's unbelievable how the body cannot work. It's not that unbelievable, really. If you don't have the right nutrients, you can't support the cellular mechanisms, the functions that the cell needs to do. If you're deficient in even one micronutrient and check and you'll say, oh my gosh, you're deficient in this, this, and this. And we know that if you don't have enough selenium, you're not going to make thyroid right. And if you don't have enough B12, nothing works right and goes on and on. There's so many nutrients nutrient deficiencies. You can see I love data. I get lots of these lab testing. In the beginning, it's a lot of data collection. And then we really know what's going on because I always say, you can't really solve a problem if you don't even understand and define the problem. I want to know, and every woman is going to be at a different stage along her journey in PCOS. Some women are maybe very early out the gate, to speak, and they really haven't developed a lot of leaky gut and nutritional deficiencies and that sort of thing. And others have every problem in the book. We have to work harder and we have to tailor a therapeutic program that is what that individual woman needs. That's why you can't just do cookie cutter. There's some things that you could do cookie cutter, go to bed, exercise. There's certain, but even exercise. If you tell a woman who's a hundred pounds overweight and has inflammation all over her body, including her joints, I want you to do high intensity interval training. That is not going to work. Even, you know, you have to look at who you're dealing with, the age, and the fitness status and the energy level. That's another really unfortunate thing with women with PCOS. Their mitochondria, those little energy producing factories in cells, they don't work well. And that's because there's really an estradiol deficiency state in PCOS. There may be other types of estrogens that are too high, but estradiol production from the ovary is actually not working properly. And estradiol is critical for mitochondrial function. Plus, when you have a lot of inflammation, that creates a lot of damage as well. And then nutrient deficiencies, you need manganese, all these things you need for proper functioning of the mitochondria. It's once again, perfect storm. It's a totally different skill set to make and store fat than it is to burn fat. It's like living in a sea of energy because all that fat is energy stores. Even in the lean body of a woman with PCOS, she has all this excessive adipose tissue that's stored that is invisible without a body composition or a CT scan or such, but that can't be accessed for use as fuel. Women with PCOS are fatigued. They can't burn and create energy. It's really hard to say, I want you to start walking 10 miles a day. It's not going to happen. They're too tired. And when you're tired, you also often just lose motivation and you get more cravings. You got to work on so many different angles here. And women need to understand that the workup is really a lot because we need to really understand. And then once they understand what's going on in their own bodies, they feel empowered to actually now be a key joint player. This is a team effort. It's not the pill to the ill. That's what happens in the conventional practice. They hardly do any workup, barely anything. And then they just say, here's your pills and good day. And then they'll usually end up as the person walks out the door. And don't forget, eat right and exercise, which 
leaves nothing in that person's skill set to do anything. And that's the typical. Obviously, we have to spend a lot more time and give a realistic timeline. It's not like things are going to change in a day. Um, I say, give me a year. It can be more than a year, depending on what the kind of problems are that someone has. You can't do an immediate turnaround. It takes time for cells to adapt, for things to happen. And crazy starvation diets have been proven teen times to fail. That is the last thing we're ever going to suggest is, and that's what they usually talk about in the conventional world, just eat less. These people typically already malnourished. Eating less of what? I say eat more, (laughs) eat more, eat all the vegetables you want. Nobody got diabetes because they ate too many salads. It's just not happening. That's not the cause of diabetes. And I have another motto, don't be afraid of fruit because we have an epidemic of diabetes and polycystic ovary syndrome, but it's not because people ate too many apples. I can assure you that is not the underlying cause. And if we have time, we can talk about why is it exploding? Because it is. The incidence of PCOS is exploding and it's actually now up to maybe 20% of the population and it's much even higher in India. And there's no real good data keeping. That's the other problem. You can't know if no one keeps data. The only way they can know is by looking at insurance forms. And once again, if it's not even diagnosed, there's no diagnostic code that's going to be put on for PCOS if it hasn't been diagnosed. And they may put a different diagnosis code on. They may put hirsutism, and though it never gets recorded as PCOS or regular cycles, it never gets even recorded as PCOS. Who knows, really? But it's at a minimum somewhere in the teens. I definitely want to ask you about that because you and I have talked about even chemicals before in PCOS, but I am dying to ask you this question. It comes up all the time. When somebody gets their insulin done, how many patients have come to you and said, oh no, I had a fast insulin done. It was normal. And then you get it and it's 18, 20, 22. And for those listening in the United States, the cutoff for insulin, a fast insulin is usually 25, depending on your lab. It's usually about 25. Yeah. They are told even though they are in the range, but they're in the upper end of range, you're just fine. Can you walk people through how you may feel differently about that? <laughs> people need to know what the range means, okay? Yes. For every lab test, there is what is called a reference range. That is not a normal range. And this is something that is a moving target, the reference range, depending on who they're testing. What a reference range is and how it's created is that the laboratory will test about 2,000 random people, often they're relatives of people who work for the lab. (laughs) They're supposedly healthy, but who knows? They don't like do true serum or testing to prove they're healthy. They just say they're healthy. They'll test about 2,000 reasonably random people, and then they plot out the results of those 2,000 people. And it gives you a 95 percentile range. The bottom number of that reference range represents the bottom two and a half percent. Two and a half percent of people tested scored below the bottom number. The top number means two and a half percent of all the people tested scored above that top number. Let's think of it this way. You're getting a proficiency test in high school and it's like for, say, reading, okay? And you score in the bottom three percentile, but you're in the 95th percentile of all the people, but you're in the bottom three percent. Would you be proud? Probably not, right? If you're in the reference range, but you're just a smidgey over that bottom number, 
And then they say, you're fine. You're not so fine. You're like in the bottom 3% of people tested. That's not a good place to be if it's something you want. What if it's something you don't want to have too high? The opposite. If you're like the top number represents 2.5% of people tested scored above that. What if you're in 3%? 3% of people scored a higher number than you. But it's something that too much of is bad for you. Too much insulin or too high of liver enzymes, things like that. Or think of thyroid. If you want to be in the bottom, do you want to like think, is this something I want or I don't want to have too much of or too little of? And if you have no idea if you want it or you don't want it, you just then at least go for the mid range. Okay. <laughs> Say, at least let me be in the middle. Okay. You don't like, if you're not sure, do I want a lot of this or do I not want a lot of this? At least go for the middle. But when it comes to insulin, fasting insulin, you want that low. Okay. Because if you have a high fasting insulin, that means you're chronically creating inflammation, you're chronically storing fat and making fat. And that's usually indicative of a high fasting blood sugar to go with it. And what happens though, is that initially in the process of insulin resistance, you can have a totally normal, even perfectly acceptable blood sugar. Okay. But you have this high Ish. It may not be over the 95th percentile, or it's actually 97.5, way up there in the percentile. It's not way up there, but it's higher than what we would want. And yet your blood sugar is still fine. That's why it's really important to check fasting insulins, okay? It's really important because initially, okay, if your body is getting a problem, okay, the blood sugars are going high and insulin isn't working well. We call that insulin resistance. Okay. The insulin is just a little bit feeble. It's not, not doing as great a job, but it can still do the job, but it takes more. It takes more. Okay. You're trying to open a door and by it's a push door. You're just too weak to push the door open. You get a few people to push with you and then enough people pushing on that door, it'll open. That's like insulin. It's like, get the glucose in the cell. I can't, I'm too weak. Okay, more, come on buddies. More insulin will push and we'll get that glucose into the cell. Initially, the blood sugar can be managed by simply having a higher level of insulin. Just checking blood sugar isn't gonna tell you the earliest stages of insulin resistance. But if you have a high above optimal level of insulin, that's telling you that you're already getting into insulin resistance. And that's what we want in functional integrative medicine is to be proactive, to recognize conditions that are going to be harmful at the earliest stages. So you can take really proactive measures to prevent that from happening. We do not want to deal with end-stage disease. I am not good at reversing end-stage disease. Somebody comes in and they have end-stage renal disease, end-stage dementia, end-stage heart failure. I can't reverse that, but I can reverse early stages. Yeah, that's what we do. That's why we want to be proactive in getting tests. And insulin that's up there in the, even above 10, but I like it under five. Me too. Yeah, but I'll say if it's 10, I'll say this is the very first signs that you're developing some insulin resistance. And once you get up into the teens, that's a problem. And it can be a problem in terms of what's happening at night as well. Say someone has sleep apnea or very poor sleep patterns, then that could cause the cortisol to go high during the night and drive up that blood sugar. And then the body puts out more and more insulin. So that can be, when you look at a high fasting insulin level, 
you got to look at it and then think, okay, what's really going on throughout this whole sleep? Because this is fasting. You may want to check it other times in the day, like a two-hour post-insulin and see how that compares. You can do now, like I don't do it too often, but if there's a question, you can do a glucose tolerance test along with an insulin tolerance test. You do the insulin and the glucose. You see how it tracks together and you see if the insulin is going way too high but the glucose is still okay, then it's like the earlier stage. You like it, the insulin is still managing the blood sugar at the expense of higher and higher levels of insulin. And when you have high insulin, which is essential for life to have, insulin is not an optional hormone. If you don't have it like type one diabetics, you'll die. That's until they developed how to make really human identical insulin. Being type one diabetic was horrific and just they would die. You need insulin. We don't want to like badmouth insulin, but like everything, you can have too much of an essential thing. Too much insulin all the time is going to constantly create inflammation. It's going to constantly cause you to store and make fat. And you may think you can multitask, but I can guarantee you cannot burn fat and make fat simultaneously. It's not going to happen. That's why getting that insulin down along with the blood sugar, okay? There's a, obviously a clear relationship is so critical for women with PCOS. Some people misunderstand PCOS and they think the underlying issue started with insulin resistance. That is definitely a huge and almost always a prevalent feature, but that didn't start, that wasn't the first thing in this domino effect of things. It really did start elsewhere and it does relate to the production of estradiol, which does link, like you mentioned, I've been looking at some of the environmental medicine data that's coming out, it's really scary as they all get out looking at the forever chemicals and the different plastics, the phthalates, the BPA, heavy metals, and all of these are endocrine disruptors. An endocrine disruptor is any chemical that interferes with anything about a hormone, the creation, distribution, receptors, storage, elimination, degradation, any single or all features of how hormones are used, made, or eliminated from the body can be impacted negatively by endocrine disruptors. And this is actually playing a significant role in the increase in the incidence of PCOS. And it's also making it more severe in many cases. And I've done a little bit of surveying. I haven't published or done a formal study, but I'm finding that women with PCOS tend to be less capable of eliminating. They may have certain genetics where they have homozygous MTHFR and such, so they're not the best methylators. They seem to bioaccumulate. And they actually have done some studies on women with PCOS, and they found that their body load of bisphenol A, BPA, is actually higher than the average woman living in the same community. It doesn't mean that they're actually chomping on plastic more. It may be that they're getting the same level of exposure, but they're not as good at getting it out. Everything with toxic load has to do with lowering the exposure and also improving the elimination. Some of that is actually just a genetic thing that women with PCOS that have the worst manifestations may just genetically be not as good at getting rid of it. We have to be extra vigilant about reducing exposures and then optimizing gut and liver health to try to be better at getting it out of the body. That's my next question. In the time we have left, I do want to give people a lot of hope because you are a total beacon of hope. When you talk about PCOS and when you write about it in the summit that's coming up, just give us a snapshot. Obviously, you can't address every, this is a podcast. We don't, know, <laughs> we don't know everybody's lab work. We don't know what everyone's going through. But if somebody listening to this is probably really struggling, identifies with a lot of what you've talked about, has seen 
four, five, six doctors already and feeling really frustrated. Once you get to this part, what are sort of the pillars that you go for with PCOS? When you talk about lifestyle, that's something that everyone can do on their own. They don't actually need any healthcare provider to be there. It's nice to have support, but you may not get it. This is like a do-it-yourselfer in some cases. I have a seven-step plan, and it involves all the fundamentals that really affect the manifestations of PCOS. We talk about nutrition. We talked about the gut microbiome is not right, you know, with a leaky gut, gut repair and nutritional status. You got to nurture your gut microbes. We got to give them the proper food. And what do they love? They love plants and fiber. Obviously, we're not tailoring to this to people who have extreme SIBO and they have to be dealing with that first. We're talking about the typical, okay, person with PCOS. We want to do a high plant-based diet. And we know when you have dysbiosis or abnormal gut microbiome, you do not properly process red meats. You don't have to be totally vegan, although if you're open to it for six months, that actually is very beneficial and really can drop your cholesterol and inflammation markers a lot by just massively intaking vegetables. And I usually say, if you can, this is extreme, it's a goal. Nobody's going to probably achieve it, but try to have about nine cups of vegetables, three cups of fruit a day, And then I always want people to know that beans are a healthy food. They have wonderful fiber and they are very good for menten. And that's what the microbes need. That's their food is the soluble and fibers and also resistant starches like cold potatoes, greener bananas and things of that sort and bran, different kinds of bran. You can do oat bran and rice bran and those are really great resistant starches. They don't turn into sugar. They're just pure food for your gut microbes. You just want to nurture those microbes and you got to replete your body of the nutrients, the antioxidants. We really want to do all that. And then We do what we call a reset or a detox, but basically, even if you just ate the right foods and got a good probiotic, that's going to go a long way to really helping to restore a good, healthy gut. And then sleep. It's not optional. We know there's thousands of studies out on the essentials of sleep. Women with PCOS have about twice the incidence of sleep disordered breathing and sleep apnea. Sometimes it is necessary to get a sleep study, but independent of that, you can also just make sure you go to bed at a really good time, closer to 10, not past 11. Make sure your room is really dark because women with PCOS have issues with melatonin and cortisol and circadian rhythm. You want the room really dark. And I like to tell people to watch the sunset The colors of the sunset help to lower cortisol and start rising melatonin. You can even take a tiny dose, a half a milligram of melatonin a couple of hours before you go to bed. And that will, it's like welcome sleep without giving you a super high, falsely high level. Not that it's false. It's not appropriate that you have a really high level of melatonin when you're falling asleep. Melatonin has its own rhythm and it should peak around 2 a.m. We want to live with our rhythms. And then fitness any which way you can. Taking more steps, taking a brisk walk after meals can help lower your blood sugar and improve glycemic control. Any kind of fitness you can. The official old-fashioned recommendation of 30 minutes five times a week for moderate type exercise still is good. And resistance training because women with PCOS always need to build more muscle. Muscle is what burns glucose. So you need more muscle is fantastic. We don't want to lose muscle, not ever. And then stress. You cannot emphasize, we didn't have time to talk about the emotional symptoms and issues of women with PCOS, but they're very, very significant. Women with PCOS have significantly higher rates of anxiety, depression, 
self-esteem problems, body image problems. There's a lot going on. And for a whole host of reasons, mind-body medicine is really critical. And you have to find what resonates with you, whether it's a form of meditation, guided imagery, progressive relaxation, acupuncture, body work, cognitive behavioral therapy, any or all of the above can really be just really amazing. Just without overwhelming everybody out there, if you could do just that, that's not a little thing to say, eat better move better, sleep better, stress less, just that. Let's just start with that. And these can be life transformational, really. And it's amazing. I have patients lose 60 pounds in a year and keep it off. They feel great. We watch their body composition. We just nurture them. Sometimes I have to use medications, but a lot of times I don't. And with or without medications, this is not optional to incorporate some of these fundamental lifestyle types of things. And the only other thing in terms of timed eating is another very big thing. There was actually an amazing study out of Israel a few years ago, and it showed that women with PCOS, if they ate two-thirds of their food intake in the morning, we'll call it morning meal, and then one-third for a very late lunch, around three o'clock in the afternoon, no snacks at all, actually anti-snack unless you're trying to gain weight, okay? No snacks because any snack is going to have some impact on blood sugar and insulin. We got to have low blood sugar and low, not crazy low, normal, good low insulin if we're going to ever lose weight and have time for the gut to rest and repair. You don't want to keep feeding all the time. But in this Israeli study, they ate two-thirds of all their food for breakfast or morning meal and one-third for late lunch, no snacks at all. And it was not severe caloric restriction or anything like that. This is so incredible. In one month, their testosterone levels fell by just over 50%. Wow. Incredible. Wow. And also their 17-hydroxy progesterone went down by 40%, which means that they had less inflammation and their cortisol was going down too. They didn't measure directly cortisol, but that means they're, when cortisol and DHAS are linked together, if that went down, everything got better. Let's put it that way. And their cycles came. In just one month, they got a spontaneous period. If you are this gung-ho, and who's this gung-ho? Usually it's women who are at the end of the rope and women who want to get pregnant. Okay. If you're actually willing to do this, replicate this Israeli study, eat two thirds of your food, and it would be the plant-based diet, the healthy, super nutritional containing foods. Of course, don't eat any processed food. Don't eat chemical food. Don't eat only natural whole foods from the earth and all that kind of thing. I'm sure you all know that there's nobody is advocating for processed food except manufacturers of processed food. Never eat things that have labels with chemicals. If you buy something that's pre-made, it's lightly processed. Then you look at it and it says like in a glass jar, the contents, what are the ingredients in that jar? Organic stewed tomatoes, period, end of story. That's it. That's right. There's nothing else in it that's lightly processed. That's it. That's the only kind of processed food you should have. But if you can do this, replicate this Israeli study, their results were phenomenal. To imagine lowering your testosterone. Oh, and I didn't mention this. The insulin went down 50% too. I figured. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But that's incredible. It shows you the power of lifestyle medicine right there. And with exercise, what have they shown? It outscores metformin. It outscores antidepressants. It's like the doctors don't want to do it. They say, They don't want to talk about it because they say patients won't do it. You out there, you can do it, okay? Don't listen to those naysayers. You have the power to do these things, to control your own destiny. 
And this is why I love talking with Dr. Gersh, because she's just a beacon of hope and a beacon of information. And all the things that we did not get to cover today on the podcast, she has resources for you. Can you please tell us about your books? Can you please tell us about the summit and then where people can find you? I have two books I'm very proud of on PCOS. The first one, PCOS SOS. And then the second one for people who really want to get pregnant and want to do it quickly and safely and have really healthy babies and pregnancies, it's PCOS SOS Fertility Fast Track. And that's a 12-week, week-by-week detailed program. They're two really essential reads, I think, for all women with PCOS. And in terms of this health summit, and you're on it, I'm so excited. (laughs) And I interviewed well over 40 guests of great credentials and knowledge to learn and so that everyone out there can learn so much about PCOS. I even learned stuff. I really did. It's amazing because I interviewed people from all over the world, Dubai and Australia and the UK. Everyone has an interesting take and experiences. The health summit is called PCOS SOS Summit, and it's going to be live on the internet starting November 28th. And I guess you'll have links to how people can sign up. And I'm still an old-fashioned doctor. I actually converted an exam room into my little video room here. And there's actually an exam table right over there. You can't see it. I'm in my office right now. And I see patients five days a week, unless I'm lecturing somewhere, five days a week in my office. It's a brick-and-mortar building. I'm still like old-fashioned. I do hands-on and uh, one-on-ones. And it's called the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine. It's in Orange County, Southern California. We're right next to Laguna Beach and Newport Beach, and we have lots of fun stuff here. Even if you're from out of state, you can come and see me once or twice a year, and then we can do other stuff with telemedicine, but it's really fun. I'm still old-fashioned. I love seeing people in person and having that personal touch, but we do a lot of telemedicine too. I love that. I'm here for anyone who actually wants to do that, And I also am trying to be more vigilant and do lots of Instagram lives. Please follow me on Instagram. What is your Instagram handle? Let everyone know. Oh, it's dr. period. You have to put the period in. dr. period. Felice Gersh. That's my name. And we will have all of those things linked below. And I do want to highlight that the PCOS SOS Summit is completely free. You can sign up on the link we have below. November 28th is when it kicks off. And you can listen to the 40 plus amazing experts that she interviewed and learn and take charge because that's what just Dr. Gersh just keeps saying over and over. You can do this. You can take charge. It can happen. Oh, and I wanted to mention that at the end, it's all free, but if people want to go back and listen to ones they missed and so on, and they decide they want to buy it and own it, which is totally optional, any money whatsoever that I get, 100% is being donated to the nonprofits for PCOS. If you actually decide, totally optional, that you actually want to buy the summit so that you can share it or look at it over and over or once interviews you've missed, you're actually donating to PCOS nonprofits, PCOS Awareness and PCOS Challenge. 100% of any monies that I receive go right to them. And I didn't even know that. That's amazing. Oh my goodness. See, this is why I love having you on today. Dr. Felice Gersh, thank you for being on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge about PCOS. And as I just keep saying it over and over, being a beacon of hope and education for everyone, I so appreciate it. And I appreciate you too. And thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Oh my goodness. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.